Are you ready to explore something different, something more? On Straight Ahead, hosts Arya Tepper and I examine sources of cultural vitality, from jazz music to the Jewish tradition. If you're searching for generous and soulful approaches to contemporary challenges, join us for Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. Welcome to Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. And I'm Greg Thomas, joined by the co-director, fellow co-director of the Omni-American Future Project, Arye Tepper. And today, our guest is Professor Terrence L. Johnson, the Charles G. Adams Professor of African-American Religious Studies at Harvard. And his interdisciplinary research interests include African-American political thought, ethics, American religion, and the role of religion in public life. Uh, Since the Omni-American Future Project is a collaboration among Black American and Jewish organizations, what brought Professor Johnson to our attention is his 2022 book uh, titled, and he co-authored this book, Blacks and Jews in America, An Invitation to Dialogue. This episode with Professor Terrence Johnson was recorded before October 7th, I should also note that subsequent to the recording of this episode, Professor Johnson has been appointed to the prestigious position of co-editor at the Harvard Theological Review. It's a great conversation. We talk about subjects like, are Jews white? Terrence Johnson is a thoughtful man of the left. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Professor Johnson. It's great to be with you guys. All right. So we're going to start off um, talking about Black-Jewish relationships, which often, when it's discussed, is discussed in terms of conflict, in terms of, you know, some racist statement or anti-Semitic statement. Um, And it's usually or often posed that way in a media environment, both mainstream media, social media. That's the algorithms are set for conflict. That seems to be the the focal point. But each of us has relationships with our own rooted communities, as well as other communities. And in the case of of me and you, Professor Johnson, uh, the Jewish community and Jewish American community. So we'd like you to start by talking about, you know, tell us about where you're from and when you first uh, came in touch with both uh, Jewish Americans as well as Jewish American thought. You know, I grew up in uh, Indiana, in a small rural town, uh, Northeast Indiana. Um, And I would say, you know, it was a really interesting place because when I was growing up, it was literally divided like black and white. Like we knew many of the whites had come from Germany, were very much involved, you know, in the Lutheran church. And many of the African-Americans who were there were literally from the South, from Alabama, Mississippi, and came you know, with the Great Migration, starting in 1915. Um, and, and, and we were aware of, of say, of the Jewish community, but it was, it was like an invisible presence, right? Um, I knew of uh, a journalist in town who was a columnist, but it was a kind of a strange kind of interaction because, again, no one really talked about sort of Jewish thought, Jewish identity in a robust way. I knew that there was like, a, you know, a family that lived in my grandmother's block, mostly African-American community, but there was one white 
Jewish family. They were, I didn't know they were Jewish at the time, but I knew that people respected them and, and everyone knew you don't mess with this family. Like the whole neighborhood kind of really protected them and they were merchants in the neighborhood. But again, they didn't go to church on Sunday. You know, they didn't worship on Sunday. And so we knew, I knew there was something different or something that, you know, that, that, that I guess signified that they were not Christian, but I didn't know what that meant until I went to college, really, and really dived more deeply into sort of J- Jewish history, but also uh, Black Jewish relations. Can, can, can we back up one second? When you said that the community made sure that nothing had, that no one messed with them, what's that all about? Again, there are these like many invisible, like unspoken rules in so many communities. And often, you know, I grew up knowing that you respect the people based on how your parents responded to them, right. the tone of their voice, right. what they didn't say. And we just knew, and I just knew subconsciously that there was something different about this family. They were a part of the community, but not. Um, and while we didn't engage them in terms of like, I guess, the family reunions or, or neighborhood block parties, right. there was a sense of kind of respect for them. And mm-hmm. people were very clear, this is a family we look out for, you will respect them. And they're off limits in terms of any, any kind of, you know, uh, ominous behavior. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, what would you, why do you think that was the case? I mean, what would your speculation be, you know, being uh, retrospective, thinking back? Sure, sure. I would say retrospection. I mean, part of it is, I think, there was a mutual sense that they were both sort of had been otherized by the Gentile Mm. community. And there's a sense in which I think they had a kind of familiar relationship in terms of merchant sort of, you know, customer relationship. And again, that can get overly stereotyped, but I do think there were some positive encounters. And, and that being said, I was also aware that there was something in anti-Semitic slurs I also heard, right, in terms of how people refer to Chicago, right? But again, I didn't quite, I didn't connect it to them per se, but I knew that there were terms that were derogatory, but I didn't quite know, know what they meant other than them. There were clearly people who were merchants who were tied to money and who were tied to interactions with African-Americans. But again, no one overtly said Jews or Jewish people. But I, I knew there was something there. And I think part of that had to do with sort of the history of politics respectability, at least that I grew up with, in which people really wanted to present a kind of dignified sort of way of being for their children. And it was a sense in which there's just certain things you just didn't say in front of kids, right? And so I think they wanted to respect themselves and also respect their community. And I think what's also interesting is that when you sort of dive into, as you all well know in terms of into black culture, right? There are all these ways in which people are signifying, they're, all, they're, they're speaking double talk. And I think in so many respects, we often ignore these communities because we assume that they're, they're flat and they're one thing. But when you dive into how they use language, how they speak, the tone, you really get a sense of the many the ways in which you're communicating at very multiple levels. So when you, you got to college, that's when you came, that's when you, when you took a deeper dive into the Jewish people and their, their language and all, also their, or yeah, how did that uh, exploration go? Yeah, so it's really kind of strange. I would say there are a couple of things. Um, you know, I went to Morehouse College and, you know, I went in the 80s when this whole revival around HBCUs. By the way, um, there's a sense in which you know, I'm sorry, just oh, so sorry. that folks know, no, no. Morehouse is in the ATL. Atlanta. And, you know, and and, and Spike Lee really, you know, with the movie School Days, there's a whole sort of like, you know, um, public enemy 
you know, rap music taking a huge consciousness, right, in terms of the lyrics and really wanting to push back against the whole crack epidemic and this whole notion that Black folk are problem people. Um, you know, I really wanted to go to a place where I could just, like, just exist, mm. right? And and I wouldn't be excluded because I was Black. I would be excluded because I wasn't smart enough or because I didn't engage the people in the correct way. So when I arrived, I was pretty, I was shocked when I saw white professors. I'm thinking, why are they in HBCU? <laughs> Again, not knowing the history. And several of them happened to be, you know, of Jewish descent. And then what I learned over the course of time is that many HBCUs were havens, right, for Jewish uh, immigrants in part because elite colleges would not hire them. And so many of them went and found a safe place at HBCUs. And, and, and as a result, they, along with African-Americans, really made these institutions into incredible places that had very few resources, right? But use those minor sort of handful of resources to produce incredible students. And so I would say I didn't learn in terms of like the history of, of Jewish people, but sure. we definitely engaged sort of thinkers and writers, um, really dealt with like a, a, the Atlanta South and how Black Jewish relations are really important. But I really dived into what I went to have it for college as a professor many years later. And my first year there, I had two students come to me. One happened to be of Palestinian descent, one of Jewish descent. They're like, hey, professor, no one wants to, you know, facilitate this discussion with us on how to talk about Israel-Palestinian issues. Mm. And we're wondering if you can do it. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm a first year untenured professor. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll facilitate the conversation. <laughs> and um, it, it was really, it, just, it was just an incredible experience in part because I could see on the ground two individuals who were really deeply rooted in the thickness, right, of their traditions. And yet they wanted to use that thickness as a way to engage others, as a way to figure out how do we deal with this perennial problem around Israel-Palestine. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing experience because I could really see how the human spirit can emerge in the midst of all the rubble. And um, of course, this, this is, it's idealistic, right? It, it, it doesn't always sort of materialize when one like has to sit at a negotiating table, and when one has to deal with literally, right, the bones of folk who have been murdered or folk who have been pushed aside. And so, and, and yet their deep interest in wanting to keep this conversation going really sparked my interest. And that led to a course that two of my other colleagues and I co-taught called Blacks and Jews in America. Mm. And basically we designed a course that really wanted to explore why these two groups have an encounter and what's the big deal? What makes them unique? And so I taught that class for one one semester. And after semester, it was a really difficult experience. Um, you know, I, I love my colleagues. I love my students. But I think the students wanted us to say, okay, now that we've discovered that it's, it's beyond this whole myth of people walking across Selma Bridge, there's actually tensions or actually really interesting engagements. What do we do with this information? Because we actually want to rebuild the relationship. And I would say at the professorial level, my colleagues were like, well, some of my colleagues didn't want to have a kind of a proactive stance. We're like, no, we're, we're, we're academics right. and we want to let you guys do that work. And so we never taught the class again. I think it was really difficult for some people because students were really, I would say, not only emotional, but really, invest, really invested in the project. And that meant they wanted everyone to kind of come clean, as it were. They really they wanted all of us to say, here, here are the real hurdles. And I think for some of my colleagues, it was tough because it meant a certain kind of exposure that as academics, historically, that's not what we, are, we were trained to do. We were trained to be so-called objective, right, to present the knowledge, students digest it, and then we allow them to develop whatever they want from it. 
there's an alternative vision of the humanities, which is, you know, the humanities is the cultivation of the soul and community in which, you know, this type of discussion when, in which we begin with what's actually first for us, you know, those things that are supercharged in our immediate environment, you, be, you, you precisely begin there and then, you know, you can ascend to a more comprehensive perspective by asking the necessary questions. It, it seems to me that like that type, that, um, the academic asceticism, this kind of ascetic pose when it comes to advancing any notion of the good, that's a, that's a missed opportunity. No, I agree. And yet there are real structural barriers, right, that prevent that opportunity from emerging. And I think for many of my colleagues, it's a sense in which, well, here are the standards that we have to abide by, right, as academics. And once you begin to expose yourself, especially with black Jewish relationships, and then connected to Israel-Palestine, it's like everyone basically says, you can't win, right? <laughs> um, and I know you have a question about that later, but people will say, you cannot win. Right. I'll be very frank. My friends are like, we're African-American. Most of them say, why are you doing this? Right. Like, what do you gain from this other than potentially saying the wrong <laughs> thing that will end up, and you will end up wow. losing your job? And then other people are saying, oh, we want to do this. This is like great. We want to have the conversation. But I'm saying, well, people want more than a conversation. Like, people want more than a dialogue. And I think because the two groups no longer historically live in the same urban areas next to each other, they're no longer, say, engaging each other in parks, right? Their kids aren't necessarily in, in, involved in the same kind of extracurricular activities. There's a huge rift. So when I went to talk to class at Georgetown, you know, I talked with a, a colleague from uh, School of Foreign Service, Jacques Blinerblau, also the co-author of the book. And what we discovered is that the black kids who took the class, like, oh, we want to learn about black history. And the Jewish kids are talking to us, oh, we want to learn about Jewish history. They never imagined there was any kind of fruitful interaction between the two groups. And then, then we had a subset of kids who were like, oh, we, we think these groups are really interesting. Why are you pairing them together? Right. And so we taught the class. And what we discovered is that these groups are like, wow, okay, even when we told, exposed like the real nitty-gritty history, whether it's in ACP, right, whether it's the voting rights legislation, real pragmatic political efforts and economic efforts, right, to not only unite the groups, but also to really push against, right, anti-Semitism and type-like racism. They're like, we get it, but we don't really talk to each other. We don't even know each other. So how do we begin to have this conversation, even with all this material? What do we do? Because we listen to the same music, but we don't interact at that, that level. Both groups saw the other as extremely otherwise. And so we struggle to figure out how do we actually then take this material out of the classroom and use it to develop meaningful human relationships. Wow. So, so one, one quick question that I have then is the role of history, because it seems that you were trying to use history as a foundation and a particular narrative as a foundation for entering the issue and the dialogue and the discourse of the relationship, which seems to me a very, you know, obvious place to start in our own narrative for the Omni-American Future Project. You know, we being emphasizing cultural and civic um, aspirations and foundational principles, we center on Benny Goodman in the late 30s, Carnegie Hall him having a concert where he 
in essence, integrated Carnegie Hall by having members of the Count Basie Orchestra, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and his own band, which included uh, vibraphonist Lionel Hampton uh, and pianist Teddy Wilson, as, a, as, as one starting place for the narrative of the relationship. And then we go to the 60s with Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Heschel. You know, so that's part of the story we tell. Do you think any of this has to do with the lack of appreciation of the role and function of history itself and then how you can use that understanding to then build relationships, intergroup relationships and interpersonal relationships? You know, it's interesting. We also use like Rosenwald and, and Booker T. Washington relationship with the Rosenwald schools, right? And the whole five, as you, you know, creating 5,000 schools in the South and how it was a really like a co-equal partnership that both contributed 50% to developing these schools. And even with that anecdote, students are like, but at this moment, these people say I'm, you know, fostering and cultivating apartheid in Israel. And, and those are my people. Or other people are saying, no, these people think I'm dumb and they're part of the problem because one of them happens to own, say, a record company, right, that they think is exploiting people, happens to be a Jewish person. So then they're saying, with that example, with these two examples, they can't see the, how the history in some ways can trouble these current um, moments. And I think in part of the issue is both groups have been so demonized and, 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 and murdered that the only refuge, right, in some ways, is to seek a safe place, right, in the comfort of what's mm. familiar, right? And what's familiar is sort of recognizing your history as a way to deepen yourself within that history. But we haven't taken the next step that Tony Morrison says in terms of, well, then how then do you assume that your, your history is, is central that then allows people to come in at, at will, right? And as Howard Thurman says, is your heart, is, it, is there a door that allows folks to enter and exit? And part of the response is that, well, yeah, we've allowed people to enter and exit, but they often leave a lot of residue. Or if they don't leave residue, they try then to, to cement the door shut. And so there's a lot of pain. I think part of the issue is we haven't dealt with sort of the pain, right, of how both groups have been not only imagined, but how they have experienced their sort of plight for the American dream, right? And I think. For many African-Americans, they don't hear the internal sort of drama and, and, and turmoil of what we call white Jews, you know, many of whom, you know, are Ashkenazi Jews in terms of how they experience, right, um, sort of ethnic immigration in the U.S. and what it, what it means for them to experience racism. For many people, like, oh, well, you're just white. You know, you, you clearly don't experience any kind of pain that, that's uh, commensurable to, say, the structural racism I'm experiencing. And then on the other side, this whole notion of, well, how do we begin to engage our brothers and sisters and talk about the ways in which the very notion of blackness is not simply a color, right? But this is ontology that in some ways is before history, that we are born into recognizing people who are brown as the problem, right? And people who are inferior, right, without a soul. And then in some way, we got to figure out how do we bridge that bridge? And, and I think... There are, there, there are ways in which to do it, but it requires a certain kind of vulnerability. I was working with a group this, this summer or this past year, and, and we took a group to, of Black Jews, Black Christians, and again, white Jews. I know you guys, we're going to talk about that term later, to, to Israel. And 
there was a major breakthrough when many of the African-Americans heard uh, their Jewish brothers and sisters talk about the internal strife around the current moment of Israel. And what was interesting is that many people saw that moment as, or I saw it as a moment of a great entry point. Because now people can say, oh, I see your vulnerability. And I, I can resonate with that because I have my own vulnerabilities. And I can have to do my own set of contradictions, right, in terms of how I deal with religion, say, for example, and gender or religion and sexuality. And so I think the more we can, in some ways, peek into the window, right, of what's happening. And, and again, I think for many, you know, African-American literature has been so popularized that people are used to reading about, oh, I want to read about the Black problem. How these people are, oh, how they suffer and how they rise up, you know, and emerge. But I don't think we have that same kind of popular interest in terms of well, let me find out what does it mean to be Jewish in America. Right. I mean, clearly there are great texts around it, but in terms of the, how the media and, and how we what sells, what sells is a certain kind of notion of black pain and its own notion of, of, of black suffering. When to read a Richard Wright over mm. Ralph Ellison, right, or read a Richard Wright over over uh, you know hmm. Baldwin. Right. Look, you said a lot, and a lot of very no, <laughs> and a lot of a lot of very interesting things. But I want to. I don't know if you intended to to push, and if so, I want to push back. But it, it, I don't know. But you mentioned that that that, that uh, the Rosenwald is another anecdote that you tried to offer. I don't think that the Benny Goodman story or the Heschel King stories are anecdotal. I think it goes deeper than that. Hmm, uh, okay. And that's because. Uh, and it gets to the point of pain. It begins with the point of pain and suffering. And if I, I'll start with the, the beginning, which will be where we'll, we'll end up at, which is that I think that that what you have here is a history of Black Americans and Jewish Americans meeting at the peaks. And it's not accidental. Because what you have in, for instance, jazz, it's not accidental that jazz was the art form that enabled Carnegie Hall to be desegregated, that integrated Carnegie Hall. This is 10 years before Jackie Robinson. Black Americans, and this also might get to why Black American literature is more central to the American story than Jewish American literature, which is simply because Black Americans are more central to the American story than Jewish Americans are. This just, I think it's rooted in the depths of American history. But what you have in Black American life is you had some Black Americans in Black... Black, out of Black American society, a sense of life developed, which was heroic, resilient, joyful, which believed that opposition is also an opportunity. And this was stylized into art. This was stylized. This is what Albert Murray talks about, the stylization of the sense of life into blues idiom music. Now, this sense of life is also radically open and receptive. So Benny Goodman, was it had to be a jazz musician and a jazz bandstand that would integrate America first. That same, and what you can see, I think, is that same heroic spirit accepted that pain is part of the process of revelation, that suffering is inevitable in life, but my, my, my approach to suffering is heroic. That's the same spirit that fueled the alliance uh, at the time of the civil rights movement. You know, it's not accidental either that when Martin Luther King wrote the liner notes to the 1965 Jazz Festival in Berlin, he said, this is triumphal music. This is not sad. It could have been Albert Murray writing that text. He looked at, at jazz and, and, and the blues idiom music in the same way. 
we don't have to be blind to the, the empirical messiness and difficulties, but we can also see an empirical history of meeting at, this, at these peaks, these spirited and sometimes spiritual peaks from Benny Goodman at Carnegie Hall, not Benny Goodman, uh, uh, Johnny Hodges, Count Basie. And by the way, Lionel Hampton said that they were so charged, they were so jacked that after that performance, they all went uptown, they had a battle of the bands, they didn't sleep for two days. This was a monumental evening. After that, you have the civil rights movement. And then the question today is, perhaps we have, this is not, we're not going to save the world, but there is an opportunity to help create a conscious community. And uh, today, by reflecting on that history consciously and drawing upon it, especially the tradition in, in the form of jazz music, we can uh, create a, a platform for uh, for moving forward. No, I definitely agree. And I would say part of the issue in terms of with jazz, which is an incredible example, and as you probably know, Cornel West says, look, the two best sort of intellectual traditions coming out of the black, black life are black preaching and jazz, right? In part because they were defined based on internal mechanisms to determine what was actually good and bad. And part of the issue is that African-Americans have always have been in some ways mediated through the white normative gaze to determine what is appropriate for society. And yet my fear is that the aesthetic or music alone, right, often will not get to the heart of these structural issues, right? So that when they come together in 1909 for the NCP, it's around race rights. It's around this mutual interest that, you no know, people are coming after them to kill their bodies, right? And we think about legislation, right? I mean, the biggest case, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, speaks to the, the structural issues that they wanted to actually interrogate. And part of the issue is that we're at a moment where we're folk are afraid to talk about structures. We want to talk about individuals and how individuals can, can emerge and this beauty can emerge. But structurally, the majority of Black folk, right, are living in a certain kind of dread that we often commodify, right? And especially when we think about music, right, the tension between Blacks and Jews, I, was, I would argue at this current moment, are often between very elite Black men and white Jewish men, right, within the entertainment industry. And in part because we haven't interrogated the ways in which patriarchy and capitalism are forming our identity. And when someone like Savage 21 says, I want that Jewish money, and clearly not recognizing the anti-Semitic tropes in that, in his mind, saying, I see someone who's wealthy. I see someone who appears to be taking care of a community, right, who, who, who is supported by a community where there are certain kind of norms that are expected in terms of what, how, you, how you respond to it, what you are giving to that community, right? Um, and in many respects, he and LeBron is like, I want to imitate that because I also want to do something very similar in my community, but I also want to have the resources, right, to in some ways create a certain kind of social change. And, and while I think those are great ideals, they don't really deal with the ways in which we have these sort of norms around male identity or what it means to have power. Is power only about acquisition? Is it only about how we wield in public life? Um, if that's the case, the majority of Black men are not men, right? Because we do not have access to these very elite and wealthy people. And again, the fight on the ground, people say stupid things, but, I, but I'm more interested in terms of why are we always focused on these men who battle over right, over words, when in fact there's something, there's something else there. And I think in part it has to do with, I wonder if both groups have dealt with this idea, well, what, is, what, is, what is power? Is it spiritual power? Is it, is it power through prayer, right? Like, 
is, is it what Hesh would call, is it prayer, like prayer as a way of walking with your feet, right? And I would say probably not. You know, it is about what one actually owns, what one possesses. And, and that's at issue in a, in a world in which resources are, are dying, where borders are being erased right through natural disasters. And so, I don't know, I, I, I agree with you. And yet, I think structurally, I don't, I don't see where, how the music alone or the aesthetic alone, right, can implement these structural changes without dealing with, right, these so policies. So I want to I also push back in a gentle way, in a respectful way. <laughs> oh, please, please. Um, this is a, this exactly, a point of the book. <laughs> exactly, for us to have this dialogue. So I, I would say, well, first of all, in the narrative story that Arye laid out, it wasn't just a musical. It was the musical and the political because he also included what happened in the 60s. So it's not an either or situation. Sure, it's sure. both and. That's one. Mm-hmm. And two, I want to give an analysis that I don't find is often heard in the academy. Uh, it's usually set up like, you know, personal versus structural. And I think that's incomplete because it's, that's another not in either or, but both in. But I'm going to extend and elaborate and refine it, to use an Albert Murray expression, by saying that in any language, we have certain structures. We have first person, second person, third person. We could say that the systemic and structural is a third person objective state or, you know, uh, part of speech in a sense. First person is personal, but the second person is interpersonal. We space, us, that's cultural. Culture sits in the middle of first person, uh, personal, and third person structural and systemic. That's where culture is. So it's not a question of it being only music or just about music. That's an incomplete analysis. It's where does the music and the cultural dimension fit within while acknowledging that each one of us is an individual with an individual fingerprint. Each one of us here is an individual person. Each person listening to this is an individual person. Yes, we have to deal with structural and systemic issues, but we also have to deal with personal and interpersonal. And if we combine the interpersonal and the personal, that's moving towards dealing with some of those structural. So I think some of these dichotomies that are posed or dualities or binaries, mm-hmm. particularly among academics, I think are really false, false dichotomies that don't take the discourse forward. So what would you say to that? No, no, no. I, I, I would say, again, I, I agree in terms of at the ideal level. And, and yet structurally, um, I, I, I just, I don't know if the, if the data supported, for example, when Joe Lieberman was running for sort of vice president, um, who is this? And it, it was this whole, no, or, or, or uh-huh. Joe Lieberman, Senator uh-huh. Joe Lieberman, no, there's this whole notion of well, what would happen or president, what would happen if he, you know, if there's an issue on Shabbat, like, what do we do? I mean, people were like thinking of these crazy notions in terms of, oh, we, we can't have someone Jewish in office because somehow the Judaism foreclosed certain opportunities, but was really there was this sense in which, no, people in the, in, in the American imagination see something wrong with Jewish blood. That's why people want to kill them. There's something about their blood that we have not been able to detangle, right? And even you have individuals who are exceptions, there's still these broad stereotypes that 
seem to infect our public life. Um, and I would also say that, I mean, again, um, individual prints are, are wonderful. When that person dies, will the structure actually bend to that print, right? And again, we need individuals to work collectively. But my fear is that, as Michelle Adam says, it's so easy to fall in what, what, what is familiar. Right? In other words, under what conditions do people actually push their tribal beliefs? And usually not very often. Like you have, you have the, the, the heroes that we point out, but the masses of people, you know, some of my RU philosophers would say they, they have the herd mentality. And they're not going to rise to the occasion of the people that we speak to. Now, clearly, all kinds of examples of working class folk who are pushing, but again, and resisting. But I don't see how that resistance at this moment has led to the structural changes, right? Again, we like to focus on heroes, right? But we have these heroes and we still have degradation, right? We still have. What do you think Jesus meant? What do you think Jesus meant when he says you will always have the poor with you? Well, this whole notion, right, that, you know, I am not here necessarily to solve a problem that you can easily solve with your own hands. Right. You know, structurally. Right. Kingdoms are designed. Right. So that there's, there's a multifaceted array of folk. And the point is, is it the poor that's the issue? I would say, no, poor is not the issue. The issue is that we have taken away their dignity structurally. The assumption is if you are poor, oh, you, you clearly, you, you're, you're lacking something. So it's not necessarily that I think that the poor is a problem. It's the fact that we don't attend to the poor. Like we drive by them. Um, we emulate people who have money and wealth at the expense of the poor. So the issue is, as a Christian, what's my duty? My duty is to actually tend to the least off. But that's not how we operate socially or culture. We talk about the middle class. I, I don't know of a recent president who's talked about, oh, let's actually deal with the, the working poor. When we deal with the poor, it's about how do we deal with these savages who are in our inner, inner cities? How do we deal with crime? Or how do we deal with these welfare queens? And so anyway, so again, I'm not trying to disrupt, you know, I believe in the human spirit, right? And I believe that individuals right, are so important in this process. And now I want to think about how do we as individuals then begin to think about the ways in which our traditions are so powerful that they too can uproot these systems, right? And that we need, I think, the great traditions of around, right, an exodus narrative, right? To think about how do we expand that exodus narrative, to think about ways in which people are losing homes through natural disaster. How do we retrieve these stories, right, to revive and give us new ways to think about how do we redress these issues? We clearly can't redress these issues simply by rebuilding, right? There must be some kind of structural change in terms of, okay, what led to these fires in Maui, right? There were some structural things that happened in terms of um, natural plants that were removed for, you know, to try to grow new industry. And so I think those, so again, individuals can go back and give lots of money. We can, I mean, we're, we're good at raising money during a catastrophe, but have we dealt with the underlying issues? And so I think we need both then, right? We need individuals who arise as heroes, but also we need folks who are doing the dirty work in terms of, okay, let's create policies, right, to engender more heroes to emerge in our culture. Could we pivot to, uh, back to the question of the so-called whiteness, white Jews? So maybe, Terrence, if you could please explain why you think, in what context white Jews is helpful. Sure. Sure. I I would say, um, you know, my colleague Jacques and I, 
really wanted to sort of push the boundaries in terms of how these students were engaging what we call Black Jewish issues. And, you know, one of the first things that Jacques really expressed his concern is that, look, you know, I think the ways in which we have racialized Judaism into a kind of European sort of tradition is deeply problematic, right? Especially in the U.S. context, because when we are engaging, say, um, Jews in this country, the assumption is they're all of one descent, right? And so part of the reason why we want to identify white Jews is to argue that, well, you know, there have been many African-Americans, right, who were Jews in the late 1800s who were in the U.S., right? There are African-Americans who are Muslim. And so we really want to complicate, right, how students imagine. Because often part of the issue is that when we're in a classroom, when we're trying to imagine these groups, we imagine things through stereotypes. We're, so we're trying to say, no, they're actually, you know, with the commandment keepers in New York, right, who are actually practicing a certain kind of Judaism. And so we wanted to bring in new images, right, as a way to dismantle, right, and not to use as a category that I think that's, that's eternal, but as a category in some ways to help us then push beyond, right, um, in some ways what is an impasse, so, right, this notion, of, oh, yeah. So, so um, if I, I'm not sure if I'm understanding you correctly. You, you, you're using white Jews as a critical tool to undermine existing ways of understanding uh, uh, the breakdown of ethnicities? Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, so in other words, we most of our students are like, oh, aren't all Jews of European descent, right? This idea of Mizrahi Jews or Sephardic people, I mean, have aware of the categories, but when, it, but when we talk about Black Jewish relations, we're often thinking of, right, the stereotypical image of an Ashkenazi Jew immigrating, say, to Boston, New York. And we wanted to say, no, they're also black Jews who get left out of the conversation. So how does it right? help? And, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. So earlier you talked about, and what was interesting is that your your interest and your investigation of Jewish identity was fueled by part by Israel Palestine, which is interesting in and of itself. And that you brought a, a groups to Israel, Black Americans, Jewish Americans, Black Jewish Americans, to see for themselves, and that opened up. That enabled some questions to be asked. But so, for instance, if I'm thinking about American Jews and and the ways um, in which we can help them uh, expand their understanding of who they are and participate in these discussions in 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 a productive, meaningful way, the idea of white Jews really, it seems, prevents them from seeing, for instance, if we look at the, the, the intense focus on Israel, Palestine, combined with this categorization of white Jews, and of course, Jewish tradition is never, I mean, that notion of white Jews is completely foreign to the language of the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition has always talked about Jews in terms of collectivities connected to ritual traditions, to, mm-hmm. to points of origin along in the, white, the Jews have never distinguished themselves according to white Jews and black Jews. But when we, when we add the, the, the white Jewishness and the, to the uh, focus on Israel-Palestine, so for instance, you, you, you miss the amazing cultural amalgam and uh, uh, melt, uh, uh, um, blend of the state of Israel. If you, if you, so, and, and I think you do have a problem, for instance, within the United States when it comes to the perception you're talking about Israel-Palestine, that whiteness is then projected onto Israel and fits into all of these categorical 
you know, the powerful and the disempowered and the structural racism. And here we have, again, white people and brown people. But when you get to Israel itself, if you, if you peel back the notion of the white Jewish, Jewishness, and if you, you, if you look aside from the obsessive focus on Israel-Palestine and see Israel for itself, which is so rarely done, that's really something that's centrally missing from discussions of Israel in the American context, then you get the society, which is this amazing mix of Arab culture and European culture, Jews who come from Morocco and Tunisia and Yemen and Iraq and Iran and India and Ethiopia and France and Poland and Hungary, that uh, almost mer- that uh, unprecedented in the, in the Jewish tradition is called the ingathering of the exiles. And everything that's so charged in that cultural meeting that's taking place right now and works at so many levels, you miss that. No, I think that's a great point. And, and so and part of the reason why we actually wanted to incorporate sort of the category of white is in part because for African-Americans, right, their, their entry point to this great country called Israel, right, has everything to do with Israel-Palestine conflict, right? What in some ways implodes a relationship has everything to do with their understanding of, of empire, right? Of, 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 of Zionism as something that, that Sokli Carmichael and others actually embraced, right? Forms of it that Du Bois, du Bois embraced, that they saw as actually helpful for thinking about, right, Black politics, actually thinking about their own well-being, right, as, as humans. Um, that when they saw, in some ways, the politicalization of Zionism, right, with engagement, say, with South Africa, right, um, they felt as if, oh, this is not the Zionism we imagine. This, again, this looks like empire. So the, and so for them, the question became, well, what does it mean for formerly exiled people right now to become a part of empire? What does that look like? Right? How does one's traditions inform how one engages the other in those differences? And so, unfortunately, I agree, we should examine Israel-Palestine on its own, but for African-Americans, right, that's their, historically, that has been the entry point, right? That's, that's what starts the conversation, right? And that's what ends it, in part because memories of Jesse Jackson, right, uh, of Andrew Young, right, who's U.S. ambassador, who in some ways is fired in part because of a conversation, right, uh, with Arafat. I mean, so there's all these, these real historical moments that African-Americans think of as, oh, we are disempowered. Again, it's a binary, by people who happen to be in power, right? And it seems like this relationship is always asymmetrical, in part because of the white-black binary, because, because they, they conflate the idea of assimilation, right, as, as being like um, those who are in power. And so because um, many Jews were able to assimilate, the assumption for many African Americans, okay, well, then you then took on, right, the form of power. So that now we're relating to you not as a people, who are formerly exiled, relating to you as people who are in power. I think, and that's what's driving the Nick Cannons and these other crazy outbursts is that they are taking individual actors, right, who are saying, no, I actually know your people. I'm exiled as well. They're saying, well, we don't say how your exile existence, right, is transformed or materializing in our relationship, Right whatever that might be. And so that's why I think really pushing the category as a starting point, as a, as a way of acknowledging, right, the rich diversity uh, of Judaism is very helpful, at least for 
in our in the American classroom space. I think in Israel, I'll say it wouldn't be a, that probably wouldn't be a starting point. But here, for many people who are, again see the world through these binary lens, it's an important starting. Point. I appreciate that explanation because when you frame it as a starting point, that means that you're going on a journey. So my yes. question yes. then would be yes. because I heard you use it was um, um, I listened to your conversation on, I think it was morality, ethics, and reparations a few months back. It was a part of a series at Harvard, um, I think, that the Divinity School was, it was at least a part of. And you used the word that you know that I use, and it is a particular project of mine, deracialization. You mentioned that. I was mm-hmm. like, oh. So my question then is, if that's a starting point, then do you make the postmodern turn? Do you deconstruct that starting point because of the fallacy of the racial construct, the process of racialization, a racial worldview and where we see ourselves as racial agents in a racial worldview? Or is that for graduate school? Uh, we're going to let these, you know what I mean? Are we going to let these these undergrads, sure, sure. you know, many of whom are not going to grad school, hold on to that racial binary when that is a part I see of the necessary deconstruction that needs to occur so that yeah. we can then reconstruct a more pragmatic and pluralist American democracy that we are aspiring to. That's in our horizons of aspirations. No. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why I talk about this too is not because I, I feel like I'm an expert or that I um, think it on one level is terribly important. But the reason why I'm really interested is that I, I feel like there's something worth retrieving from these two particular groups, again, who have been dehumanized, not based on a social category per se, but based on what is in, internal. And my, when you say internal, my, you mean what? Meaning their flesh, oh, the, 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 the absence of a oh, soul. Oh, imbi- the embodiment that, piece. Well, no, the lack of embodiment, oh. right? The fact that there's something okay. about their blood that is tainted. There's something about without, they don't have a soul or, or that they, they are immoral or because they're just criminal. That there's something about if these two groups can actually begin to interrogate, right, what it means to build traditions in this U.S. context based on that dehumanization, there's something useful for the plant, uh-huh. right? And I think we see an, ex- we see an example of that in, in Beloved, right? This whole notion, right, of what does it mean to, to deal with, right, the, the haunting of, of this sort of this ancestor. And so I think I don't want to too quickly move to deracialization okay. because we saw what happened with Obama, right? Everyone's like, oh, yes, we're in a post-racial, post-racial right. uh, America. And the assumption was, okay, if we now deify this biracial man, we have, and we, and, our and, problems and, will and be over. Be told, right? Racism is over. Our arms over, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and that's part yeah. of the problem is that we're looking for an individual savior. And we're not dealing with the other cult stuff. And so here's why I think, again, I'm in favor. I, I, I want to push for what allows us to bring forth whatever this thing we call human ingenuity, our spirit, right? 
are, are the, the beauty of, of how we inter- engage each other, right? That comes out in our music that can transcend, right, you know, boundaries. Like, why is a group of people, or a group of people in Germany dancing and clapping to Mahalia Jackson, thinking about Jesus? Are these all Christian people? I don't think so. But there was something about not only her performance, and clearly there might be some stereotyping there, but there's some of her performance, right? The, her voice, her engagement with them that just sent the crowd in this sort of, you know, amazing kind of sense of euphoria. And, and how, that to me becomes, okay, how do we begin to articulate that, right? In not only in discourse, but also in how we behave. But we can't get there because at the very, at the practical level, uh, there's a scholar, I think at Duke Angel Harris, some of his early work talks about how um, African immigrants and Caribbean immigrants are like, when you come to the U.S., you cannot associate with black kids because they're at the very bottom, stereotypically. And so even when people who are not engaged and who don't really have a sense of racialization in the U.S. know that when you come to the U.S., there are certain people you want to identify in the academic setting. And let's be very clear, it's not identified with African-Americans. So to me, until we can deal with how that becomes so universal, right, disbelief as lack of intelligence, as superior athletically, right, then we can't deracialize because our stereotypes are not simply images, but but they're actually guiding how we engage. If you don't mind, Arye, I I know you want to jump in there. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just one response. Thank you, man. Okay, I hear you, and 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 let me repeat back to you what I'm hearing. If you and you can tell me whether I'm accurate. Sure, sure. So what I'm hearing is that you're saying that there are certain stereotypes. There are certain embedded perceptions and notions of what Black Americans are and what Jewish folk are. And it goes down to their blood. In other words, it's essentialism. They, they, they were, they're born this way. This is the way they are. Okay. So I agree. That's a part of the actual racialization process process, the process of creating racial groups that are then put into a hierarchical order where, quote unquote, whiteness is at the top and quote unquote, blackness is at the bottom and is the scapegoat. Full agreement. Okay. We do have to deal with that. And deracialization actually, because you've read some of my work, is part of that. That's a part of the very process. But I think we're going to have to ch- walk and chew gum at the same time, bruh. I think, <laughs> I think we're going to have to, you know, not only say, if we don't get past these stereotypes, we can't do anything. You wouldn't agree that if we don't get past the stereotypes, we can't deal with structural and policy issues. We have to do both. So I think that if, if the deracialization project, if to use the... Uh, tagline of the Omni American Future Project, character and culture, not color. If we can't envision that and work on that at the same time that we're working on all these other things, then I think that we're going to end up focusing on what uh, Kenneth Burke, and this is this is an expression that that Albert Murray took from Kenneth Burke. I think if we if we focus on a frame of rejection, in other words, what are we against and why? Justifiably so. Because certain forms, literary forms, satire, you know, 
uh, and other forms that are like, what are you against? We have to, but the frame of acceptance is more heroic. In other words, we acknowledge the tragedy. Sure. We acknowledge all of that stuff. We don't deny it. We're not repressing it. But we're saying that we acknowledge it. And as Jim Brown said to Richard Pryor, what we going to do? What you going to do? Okay. (laughs) No, and what we're going to do then is then we have to then deal with it's a stereotype, but it's also it's very it's yeah. material, right? When rappers are consistently saying, I started at the bottom, but now I'm here. The assumption is that the very bottom, right? Again, right. A, st- right. a stereotype, right. but a very reality right. for people is the absence of what is beautiful, the absence of what is intelligence. And until a police officer can stop me and, and assume, not assume I'm a threat, that I think that's that we got to deal with that material. I mean, you cannot sit on someone and and and, and watch the person, Inspired. you know, and yeah. listen to him. Calling like, for his dead mom, yeah. And George Floyd. And and and, and it's more than a stereotype. Oh, yeah. yeah, I hear you. That's like, no, we have to do this to this people. Like, this is what we're supposed to do. I mean, people like certain mirrors because they're like, oh, we're tough on, we're law and order. We all know what that symbolizes. Right. It's, a, it's a dog whistle. It's we're a dog whistle. People, yeah. Yeah. And again, what are we going to do? We're going to push back against these structures and say, you cannot steal all the wealth, right? <laughs> We're not going to honor you simply because you have $100 billion. We're going to hold you accountable. We're going to push to say unions are a good thing in some cases, right? They're, maybe in all cases, but we've got to provide a way that you cannot steal all of the resources, all the wealth from this company. You have to share some of it. With the employees, I mean, I mean, is the real basic things, but as long as we are sort of valorizing, right, a certain kind of patriarchal capitalist notion of what it means to, to exist and to be human, then I'm not sure we can deal with with character and courage. Because character and courage is always circumscribed, right, by resources. So I, I think that you are, Terrence, getting to a very, very, very deep question. So one way of looking at the modern project is that the modern project was consciously constructed. It's a project. And so, for instance, there's a school of thought, uh, Leo Strauss, Harvey Mansfield, Richard Kennington, uh, and other, Paul Ray. By the way, I don't know if I told you this. By the way, this is Dr. R.E.A. Tepper. This ain't just R.E.A. Tepper. This is Dr. (laughs) R.E.A. Tepper, you dig? (laughs) (laughs) Not not, not necessary. Thank you, thank you. But only if it organically fits. Here it organically fits. Go ahead, my man. And and they envision that that the modern project was actually envisioned. Now, it sounds crazy to us because we're living in a, in a democratic world where we see changes are only possible when done by the masses and there are these structural forces. But just for a moment, take seriously the, the fact that Machiavelli, and, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but when he, sure, sure. He, when he wrote his programmatic works, he consciously forgot about the soul and he substituted for that what's called the effectual truth, which is, and that's the real spring of the world within which we live, which is let's not take our bearings by what people say. Let's not take our bearings by, by the ideal. Let's not live, mm-hmm. let's not mm-hmm. lose ourselves in these imagined republics, but let's mm-hmm. actually see what people do and what are the good effects of what they actually do. And if people are actually 
in self-interested and, and the mind is in the service. The mind doesn't naturally wonder, but, but reason can be directed, right? We can, and so we can have a method for the direction of reason, which is then the extension of that project in Descartes to become, you know, to conquer nature, become the masters and possessors of nature. The, the modern project emerges. So, and I'm mentioning just that vision because in, from that perspective, the soul was consciously displaced when imagining, let's find a more f- effective, a lower but more solid ground upon which to build the world. Let's actually build on people's real passions and not lose ourselves in these imagined republics. If that's the case, then yes, the critical question is how do we reintroduce soul in, into our lives in a way that's very fundamental and gets to the to the to the foundation. So here we don't have time and I'm just going to throw out a large idea which connects to music and maybe you have thoughts about music and the connection between music and culture but Plato, you know, there is this old political philosophical tradition that takes very seriously the power of music for fashioning the character of individuals and societies. The Bible includes a teaching Plato, Aristotle, Rousseau, Nietzsche. You can even put Albert Murray, Stanley Crouch, and Whitten Marsalis as part of this tradition. And Ralph Ellison. And, and Ralph Ellison, for sure. Sorry. No, no, no. And, and so um, you know, Plato was the one who said, change the music and you change the modes of the state. Uh, which the, the idea that the fashioning of the soul, the music is a profound tool for both touching the soul releasing its powers and shaping it. So perhaps, and again, I'm just, I know this is just a huge headline and an opening, but maybe we can use this some in the, in the few minutes that we have left. In order to recover the soul in a profound existential way, perhaps music is, is so far from just being ornamentation, perhaps it's the blood that, that, that we're really, the cultural blood that we're looking for. And Professor, and Professor Johnson, if not us, who, if not <laughs> when, but now that we bring the soul back in. We got soul music. We're soul full. We got soul food. Aren't we, aren't we in place to, 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 to bring that particular discussion? You dig? No, I, just, I, just, I just wanted to say that, that I do think that Black American culture, that this omni-American, this profound omni-American culture, uh, uh, you know, Albert Murray gave us the term omni-Americans and we can see this coherence, you know, going even you go back to Frederick Douglass, but Gene Toomer and 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 Duke Ellington, and and it, and it leads up that that it's it's very possible. I think it, that Black American, that, that on the American culture, is a profound uh, 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 channel for pre-modern for pre-modern virtue in this modern context. It's not these people who were left out, who were, who were otherized, as people like to say, and as part of the project, precisely because of that, they then were, are, are this, you have this profound articulation and uh, um, projection of the soul into this, through the music and through the culture. No, I, I think this is really fascinating. And again, I don't want to go in the weeds. And, 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 and I would say, I wonder, though, if one were to take the American context, sort of the, the so-called, you know, founding framers, as it were, of the Constitution of Democracy, right, were very much aware of at least a Christian soul, right, and then chose to 
both included, but also erase it from other groups. So when we think about Jefferson and Madison, were aware of what they call the, the Hindu tradition, Mohammedism, right? They, 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 they were reading the, the Quran. And so, but there was an intentional effort, I think, that we have like failed to embrace to, to further demonize these traditions, right, through a kind of liberal language. And so I would argue that I, I think, you know, when I think it's Felix a slave in 1777 or something was trying to argue for freedom, it was like, you're denying my religious liberty, right? As a slave, I can't, I can't execute I can't, right. what you say is so fundamental to this new so-called democracy. And yet he was denied, right, his petition. So I hear you, but I would argue that I'm not sure the soul has been has been absent. I think we have in some ways attempted to manipulate it and, and to use it when it's appropriate for certain economic ends and, and, and to regard, disregard it in other cases. And I would say, but at this moment, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, thinking, wow, I wonder with my children who in many ways are being influenced by AI, right? That, yeah, we want to revive a soul, but what if they're being influenced not to listen to that so-called conscious music or the music that can revive us, but instead a music that is dictated towards? And again, is AI that dangerous? It was no different from, I think, back in the day, people would pay disc jockeys to only pay these five albums, right? I mean, in certain terms, we've always been manipulated. And I think I just want to expose the degree to which that manipulation has become so normal that we don't even recognize it. That it's this, this kind of, as Foucault would say, this invisible web, right? That just connects us. And it's, we, we don't even see it. Yeah. We, we, just, we yeah. just do. Which is why I think we need, like, the jazz leadership form. We need these things to push against it. And, and I want to include that as we think about structures, as we think about policies, right? right? I think we've denied our aesthetic traditions in part because they can do real damage, right? Because it's about the body. And, and redirecting the body in ways that may not produce resources. Is it interesting you mentioned? Right? Which is why, again, protests mm. so important. So are you... Are you oh, sorry. No, you're good. Are you? No, I was just going to ask Terrence. All right. Are, you, are, we, are we waiting for the revolution? That's what's next. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think some people might say we're just waiting for death to happen. And then maybe something new can emerge. I guess, you know, some of the Afro-pessimists. But um, I would say that there are movements all happening all over, right? And the question is, you know, when will they collide with natural disaster? When will they collide, right, with them? It's so interesting, man, that uh, what you just said, Arie, when I interviewed uh, Professor Danielle Allen, also of Harvard, uh, about her book, Justice by Means of Democracy, um, she leans on the concept of democratic renovation. In fact, there's a center at Harvard now called the Allen Center, I think, for democratic renovation, something along that line. And I said to her, I said, well, some people would say we need a revolution in values. We need a revolution. And she 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 played with it a little bit, but she leans on on renovation. So I find that interesting. I think getting back, uh, Professor Johnson, to talking about the founders, there's no question that the ideals that they codified on paper, which Daniel Allen has written about, for example, um, our Declaration on the Declaration of Independence, 
where she actually uses it as, an, as a defense for egalitarian principles. That, yes, they allowed their social, political, and economic interests to override uh, any focus on virtues. In fact, there's certain work that shows that Madison consciously downplayed the talk of virtues to get to something similar, Aye, that you're talking about with Machiavelli, actually. Uh, because they used to talk about virtues much more in the American context. So we know that there was fundamental contradictions. Allen is important in this, I think, because she, for one, mentions that even though the founders, generally speaking, of course, they were slaveholders for the most part, but then you had John Adams, who wasn't a slaveholder. She says the issue is not just that they were hypocrites. You have to be more sophisticated than that. It's about them not expanding that social contract far and wide enough. Abigail Adams as Samuel Adams, what about women? What about women? And he was like, yeah, well, in time. So, but justice by means of democracy, she's focusing on what she calls power sharing. You talked about power before. Power sharing liberalism based on a principle of non-domination. See, so political philosophy some political philosophy, I think, is a part of it. But getting back to the soul, because you're a professor of divinity at Harvard. So soul talk is something that you should feel very comfortable with, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I, that's, I'm not overly comfortable oh, really? with it. Oh, really? um, well, oh, look, Greg, no one, I think the soul is basically as knowable as God, meaning we're talking about something that, we, the knowledge, if we can have, what are we talking about? There's no, by definition, we're talking about that aspect of human being, which is not material. So that any information that we're going to get about is going to be inferential. There's no, the, I hear the, you. The, 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 but, but at the same time, you got people like James, James Hillman, the soul's cold. I mean, mm -hmm. within psychology, um, he comes out of Jung, but he, you know, in the, 70s through the 90s and 2000s, he wanted to bring the soul back into psychology. I mean, psychology, but the psyche, the soul. So what I'm saying is, yeah. at some point, we're going to need to bring the soul back into this and the values yeah. and meanings, because I think there's a connection between the lack of focus on the spirit and spirituality and the soul and the material realities and the commercialization and commodification and consumerism, where it's just about bling bling, to use an expression from hip hop. What would you say to that, Terrence? You know, I mean, I would say I'm really comfortable in terms of thinking about how do we think about soul within a context of, of how it's been sort of right. erased, right? And, and, and this whole sense of, well, am I trying to recover something that's essential or trying to get a, get a glimpse uh, as to how, say, culture, right, along with tradition, right, are creating certain kinds of, of conditions for, for action. So I'm really interested in how do we use, say, for example, religion, right, in ways that I think might be helpful for expanding the very possibility of, of social practice, right? And also think about, do we have obligations to people, hmm. particularly, particularly to people who are hmm. poor? Um, 
as a Christian, sure as that, a Christian, you know, I mean, real Christianity, I mean, being Christ-like, we should be concerned for the least of these, correct? Well, I mean, I think some people will say that the poor are always with you. So their interpretation will say, we, we can't do anything about it, so prepare for eternal life. So, you know, and so I, I would say there are many different right. Christianities in right. the U.S., True. right? Um, and, and the question is, what sort of political philosophy I'm interested in exploring is sort of orienting, right, what I have called spirituality or orienting what some people call kind of soul politics, orienting, right, those traditions, right, that in some ways push beyond, right, this idea of, of, of reason as the only means for understanding how we have discourse in public life. In other words, how do we move beyond by saying, well, what, what can we agree upon as reasonable norms, right? I want to look at, well, under what conditions are we then challenged to question what we think of our, as our norms, right? We all have norms, but under what degree, right, will music and or a new novel, right, challenge the starting point? And, and when will we then give up those, give up that possibility? Danielle Allen, refer to her again. She folks, she says that she thinks Ralph Ellison is one of the most significant democratic theorists of the 20th century. And she bases that in part on his novel, Invisible Man, and the political ideas, cultural and political ideas therein. You know, in his um, um, Three Days from the Shooting, which is the unexpurgated second novel that was never completed, he asks, can politics ever be a form of love? You know, there's certain questions, but, but there's certain democratic ideas. You mentioned earlier how can we tend to fall back, as Ellison said in Little The Little Man from Chihaw Station, we tend to fall back on what we're used to, the the you know, our ethnic group, our so-called racial group, our religious practices and traditions. Um uh, Ellison got descriptions by saying, you know, our father's beard and our mother's milk. And you then you reference Toni Morrison. But what Ellison talks about is the deep tension between us being a people, a culture of cultures, a diverse people in all kinds of multiplicities of ways. That's why I alluded to like this pragmatist pluralism earlier. That's true in Israel and here. And how can we come to terms with, with, with that reality? Because culturally, so much of the answers in the culture, because the culture is already mixed. There's already influences and there's already all kinds of things within the culture. But when we focus primarily, and I get to a point, on the social and the political and the economic and not the cultural, I think we miss a lot of that. Now, I, I went longer than I intended to, are you? I apologize. Well, if I'm going to have any luck here, I'm going to try to bring it all home. Okay, that's nice. And then Terrence will, 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 will give you the last word. Um, but uh, uh, perhaps um, the place where, and, I, and I, if I'm hearing you right, uh, Professor Johnson, the music behind your words, not that it's explicit, there's something structurally problematic. And we're, you, and we're playing with the idea that if it's, is it somehow bound up with the soul? And perhaps the, the point where we can really get to that, um, the, the, the next is, is the question of suffering. And, and how so? Because um, that same modern world, that same capitalistic structure that you're talking about is built upon the desire for, for 
to comfortable self-preservation. That's the, that's the fuel that keeps the, the economy going. And, and so, you know, there, there have been people who have, have said, you know, modern men and women, more than anything else, they want comfort and safety and they're terrified of danger and they're terrified of pain and suffering. Uh, and that's what we're seeing played out in an extreme, extreme acute form in the proliferation of so-called safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggressions, as the people are becoming fragile, increasingly more fragile. And, and the soul uh, is what gives coherence to suffering because it is through suffering and only through suffering that the soul can grow. Now, we can either impose that suffering upon ourselves through discipline. We can, we can have that suffering you know, uh, institutionally in place through our education, and we go through it in life. But modern men and women uh, are, are, have this intolerance for suffering and pain. Um, and if we, if we accept, with the, if we begin with the fact that the blues are always they're always waiting in the wings. There's no progressing beyond the blues. This is me trying to bring it all home. That profound teaching regarding suffering is inherent also in the blues idiom wisdom. You know, there's always, the blues are always going to come back, whether you're rich or poor, whether you are so-called black and so-called white. And the name of the game, the question is, are you able to stomp the blues? And everything begins with that from that point of resilience. Um, so perhaps here too, music can be a vehicle for bringing this very old school wisdom that suffering is inevitable. And this doesn't mean we try to alleviate it. It doesn't mean we, we try to, if we see someone because of the people who we are, we want to alleviate suffering where possible. We're not going to bring suffering, but we know that it's unavoidable. It's going to happen to all of us. And once we embrace that, uh, then we, then we, we create the space for the soul to really reassert itself. No, I, I think it's really powerful. And as you're, you know, you, you said a lot there, my friend. And um, you know, I'll just say, you know, I think the blues idiom is is really critical. Um, and yet, I wonder if the blues idiom, right, um, is translatable, right, at, at this moment. In part because it requires that we learn multiple languages, right? As I mentioned before, not like that kind of how people signify, right? The tone, um, understanding certain referential points. And I think, so when you, when you clink that, say the trigger warnings, what I think is really interesting is that we're at a moment where I think many people who have historically, right, um, been in positions of, of power, right, have not had to enter, say, for example, higher education, knowing multiple languages. In other words, when the so-called other, particularly focused on African-Americans, went into these spaces, right, there was a sense in which you had to understand multiple ways of existence, right? And you're constantly code switching, um, that one had to uncover and really try to figure out what are the, um, the tools needed, right, to succeed in this context. And part of what's happening is that I think that example, right, speaks to the kind of ongoing suffering people had to endure and just say, I got to just put up with it. But then the counterculture is like, well, 
we actually have ways to cope, right? I have some products that can really ease the mind. And so I'm not sure we've taken that blues idiom and translated to people who are in power because I'm not sure people, I mean, I don't, I don't know if people in power really want to talk about suffering, right? <laughs> I think for them it's idealistic, but I think to really embody like, oh, no, what does it mean that when you come into a space like Morehouse or a space like Duke, that you have to actually know multiple languages? I think most of my students will say, what are you talking about? Right. But there's a way in which even my students who are international, like, I don't I don't get what's happening here because everyone's responding in this sort of well, some people respond in this binary way, but I'm seeing five things happening at once. And I think we have been so protective again of what's familiar that we miss all the ways in which people actually mean one thing and we assume it means something else. And so all that to say is that I totally agree with you. But when I look at social media, right, if, if that's any indication of our direction, I mean, I don't, I think most people say the blues idiom, why do you want me to suffer more? I've already suffered. I'm already at the bottom, right? I don't need to, I mean, like, what more does suffering give me? I'm, I'm suffering and maybe I guess I can find some sense of solace if I go to a sanctuary for like five or 10 minutes. But when I leave, it's like I'm hit with right? Unemployment. I'm hit with an abusive spouse, right? I'm hit with this idea of, okay, I'm in a store. I'm, I'm being followed, right? And so, I, so part of what I wonder is, when can we get multiple people in, in this so-called pluralistic democracy to actually then embody the blue city, right? In other words, I think we need people in power to figure out, well, what is it? I mean, like, and you can't just, it can't just be an idea, <laughs> Definitely not. And, I mean, so I don't, not. Know, what, I don't but know. When what you it say people like. in power, and then you're talking about a subject that is very close to home for me leadership. Okay. So yeah. it's not just about people who have political power or the wealthy. There's a concept in the Jazz Leadership Project of shared leadership. Yes, there are people with institutional and financial power unquestionably. But if we're talking about empowering a citizenry, that's one of the things that Danielle Ellen is talking about in terms of how do we, you know, share and empower more people. And one way is through a principle of non-domination. How do we allow more people to feel empowered in themselves? You do that through certain institutions, education. There's so many things that need to be renovated. Oh my God. But I, I don't want to leave with the impression that it's just those people over there because the little person, that little man at Chihaw Station has agency too. So mm -hmm. let's try to have people understand that they too have agency in their particular sphere, sure. even if it's small, it's a start. Sure. No, and Ariel, Ari, do you, but Ariel, I was going to ask you, do you really believe, so in other words, Naomi, not Naomi, um, uh, Esther, if I go to the king, I, I perish, I perish. That's like a huge, like, motif within Black churches, right? And it's the whole idea that, yes, no matter, I'm the little person, I'm going to stand up to the king. But do you really believe that most people are willing to say, I'm going to go stand up to authority. If I die, I die. No, definitely right? not. And to me, that's the blues idiom. I mean, that's part of what we have to then embrace. So, you know, I'm actually going to go what to about, the king because it's... Go ahead, what about uh, the elite? You know, Joseph 
right? The, the, who Murray calls the dreamer in action. That we, and we need to, gentlemen, I think we need to wrap it up pretty soon. Yeah. And thank you very much for yeah. this conversation. Yes. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, J- Joseph, that dreamer in action who turns his metaphysical dreams into political schemes, that is for, uh, it's true, that's for an elite. But the question is, can you have a community? Can you have a committed, strong, resilient community that takes the lead? That, be, that is and it sees itself as an example that influences policymakers that that is able to trans, translate those meta, metaphysical dreams into political schemes. I, I agree that that's the well today the billion dollar question, the trillion dollar question. And you it's, preached yeah, on that yeah. in Detroit earlier this year, Professor Johnson. <laughs> I heard that. Wow, you were yeah, listening. Man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, man, we prepare. We always do. We go in the woodshed. We do our homework, baby. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so thank so, you very, very yeah, much. thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, would you have any last words to share? You know, so you can have the last. Well, well no. I mean, it's just been an honor, and um, you know. I'm really excited about the possibility. How do we bring in multiple languages, multiple, multiple traditions, idioms, right? Yes. And again, idioms, yes, to really explore these sort of perennial problems. And um, to me, the life is in, in some ways, in, in the point of the struggle, right? In the point of the debate. I mean, because it's, we, we're always going to run from it. But that's where we're going to find, I think, the very possibility of, of, of a kind of a new earth. Emerging. Oh, thank you. As a phenomenon, the new human emerges through that kind of death, through that engagement. Absolutely. All right. It's been Beautiful. great having you as a guest. Thanks again, Professor Johnson. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Bishop. Yeah, thank, thank you for listening to Straight Ahead, the Omni American podcast. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast and fight for a future where the many can join as one against bigotry.